Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Qasim. Now, on this week's podcast, I'm joined by Nabil Abdul Rashid, who is a stand-up comedian. Um, and what else to say, really? Uh, well, the, the the topic of the conversation, I guess, is kind of racism within the Muslim community. Um, and Nabil, for quite some time, has been very vocal um, online on Facebook and on Twitter talking about kind of anti-black racism within the community. Um, and we just kind of discuss that and and I think I tried to get a better understanding of his perspective on it. Um, I've, I've followed him, I, I met him at an event in like 2016 or 17 um, and kind of followed him on Facebook ever since. And He's kind of had various stints of of being on Facebook, then getting reported, his account, you know, being suspended and coming back. And I think a lot of he is basically antagonized and and uh, annoyed a lot of people um, with kind of some of his views, or not even some of his views, but the things that he says and, and the provocative manner in which he says it. And we kind of talk about the kind of style that he takes, but overall, essentially, he just speaks out um, very firmly against uh, racism within the community, and obviously, specifically. Um, anti-black uh, racism so yeah here's my conversation with Nabil Salam Nabil Wa salam Thank you very much for, for joining me on the podcast today um, I wanted to jump in with a tweet of yours if you don't mind me reading it back to you Yeah sure uh, it, it's, it's one of the first I saw on your profile as soon as I was kind of scrolling through um, and it says, I don't believe in any hierarchy. I will not respect you simply because you have halal cheerleaders. Be warned, if you aren't part of the solution to anti-black racism in our community, you're part of the problem. Well, that, 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 that's good. I should put that on a frame, man. That's, I'm proud of me right now. I mean, I know you're supposed to be humble, but bro, that's, that's, that's good stuff. That, I mean, that's fine. You, 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 can, you can enjoy your content as much as you like. Um, I wanted to, I guess, ask you, and I wanted to jump straight in with, um, you know, I, I've been friends with you on Facebook for a couple of years. Very sorry to hear that. No, I, I've enjoyed it. I mean, I think your account's been shut down and then you've opened new accounts and you've been blocked and removed from Facebook. But I think a lot of what you do on Facebook, from what I've seen at least, is talking about racism within the community, specifically anti-black racism and specifically from Asian Muslims. Um, and I just wanted to understand why and why you perceive it to be such a such a big problem. Why I perceive it, I like that. Ah, so let's let's travel back now. You need to understand where I'm coming from before you can see where I'm going. Right. Mm. So I'm, I'm I'm Nigerian. Not sure if you noticed. Uh, and uh, I've grown up in northern Nigeria. Now this is a part of the world that's had Islam for over a thousand years, right? roughly a thousand years. Yeah, obviously, um, Uthman Dunfodio brought it back and all that. But for a thousand years, we've had Islam. My identity has never been separated from my religion growing up back home. I come to England and all that rich heritage that I've got behind me, yeah. all of that uh, Islamic uh, lineage I've got behind me gets erased. I become, oh, he's probably a river brother, a Kala. A second-class citizen, not just in the wider society uh, where where there is structural racism, which I'm sure we all agree on, but even within Masajid, where I'm going to pray and I'm salaming people and people aren't answering. 
and then I'm, I'm going to Islamic events. And because of what I do, I, you know, I'm privileged to be what well, I don't even know if it's privileged anymore. I'm around a lot of um, so-called movers and shakers within Muslim organizations, mm. uh, a lot of events that are supposed to celebrate Islamic excellence. And I see the same recurring problems. Then by my very nature, I'm involved in a lot of social work. And I see, again, the, the Muslim community, so-called community here in the UK, uh, tends to ignore certain factions of the Muslim community. And then, you know, as growing up, we were always taught to prioritize history and current events equally. And I, the more I look at the situation worldwide of Muslims, the more I see a recurring pattern, not just here in the UK, in Libya, in Pakistan, uh, in Russia, uh, in any Arab country you can name, one recurring theme, right? Where, where the depravity against people, the, the, the discrimination, the dehumanization, the marginalization of a particular group of people happens and is almost accepted. It's past the dinner table test. And it's always against darker-skinned people. I could give you a map now of Muslim countries around the world and tell you to point. And anywhere you point, any Muslim country you name, I will show you that a black person is not seen as human in that land. Not seen as Doesn't human or seen as inferior? Not seen as human. To be, to be honest with you, if we really want to be honest about it, if, if you know, racism at its core, you're not seeing someone as your equal. You're seeing them as less than human because you're seeing them as less than you. Case in point, you know, the reaction, I wrote an article, I don't know if you've seen, regarding the recent events, well, the culmination of old events that have now become recent events in Sudan. So we look at the Sudanese, and by the way, it's horrible what's happening there, what the Janjaweed are doing. But I'll make I'll travel back, you know, five, six years ago when I first started talking about the Sudanese issue on social media. Mm. Many Arab and Asian Muslims would downplay what was going on because it was happening to quote unquote South Sudanese, who were basically people that look more like me than an Arab. People downplayed the severity of the issue, even though by my count from estimations now, uh, as at 2014, over two million black people were murdered, wiped out by Janjaweed in Sudan. And this wasn't just down to, you know, they were not Muslims. Cause, and even if it was, it would be disgusting, right? Because when we talk about the deaths of Palestinian Christians at the hands of Zionists, Muslims tend to be sympathetic. But whenever Africans are being killed by Muslims, fellow Muslims, they say, oh yeah, but weren't they Christians? As if that makes it better. More than half a million Muslim Darfuris have been purged from Darfur by the Janjaweed, who are a militarized um, ethnocentric death squad, right, in Sudan. And the current president now, who they, they were protesting against, he empowered them. Whenever these things were discussed, even prominent Muslims, such as Muaz Beg, who I put in the article, have publicly downplayed the, the severity of what's happening there. But just recently, a hundred North Sudanese people who are ethnically Arab or identify as Arab were killed by the same death squad because they were protesting the same things that some Sudanese people have been protesting for years. Inequality, lack of conditions, the proper conditions of living, and social amenities, and a bad economy, among other things. A hundred Sudanese people got killed, and there was an uproar, uproar on social media, people changing their flags to blue, including people who denied that there was a problem in Sudan to begin with. And it just shows the nature of anti-blackness, because... If people had listened when black people first spoke about it initially, the Janjaweed wouldn't be around to kill those hundred uh, Arab Sudanese people. And also, 
let's gauge the response. Two million black Muslims got murdered. Nobody cared. 100 Arabs get killed. The whole Muslim world is in a frenzy. And it's the same with everything. If you go to fundraisers, it's almost impossible among the Muslim community here in the UK to do fundraising for an African country. Damn near impossible. I've got friends who are chief fundraisers and big charities, and they'll admit this to you. But they will send people will send money to their own land. Now, the only explanation for this is that the lives of those people, those Africans, those black Muslims, to them are not equal to the lives of people that look like them. Because if you see somebody as your equal, you feel their pain and you empathize. But we can see an animal dying. It's unpleasant, but it doesn't feel the same as when you see a human dying. And that's the problem with Muslims today. We see things happening to black Muslims. We don't care. But when it starts happening to Asians and Arabs, then it's a travesty. Well, I mean, you make the, the, the interesting point, and I think it's quite obvious in, on some respect that, you know, we look out for people that look like us, that we think are the same as us, right? Um, so when you say we, I hope you mean non-black people. <laughs> well, this is what I was going to ask you. I was going to, I was going to ask that, you know, if, if you've got Asians looking out for Asians, you've got Arabs looking out for Arabs, um, are the black community not there to look out for, for blacks and for people in, in, uh, in African countries that look like them? Well, let's, let's respond to that. Anywhere you go, yeah. where you see ethnic minorities doing well, yeah. it's off the back of black labor. You go to America right now, the civil rights movement. Look, I'm wearing a Black Panthers t-shirt. It says power to the people, right? Their slogan was all power to all people, right? The Black Panthers worked with Asian groups, white groups, and so on and so forth yeah. to liberate everybody. They didn't just do it for black people. And black people historically have always, in fact, the key um, pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrators in America were the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Black women are the biggest pro-Palestinian supporters you find in America on American campuses. If you if you if you look at a lot of a lot of the groups that now champion for Asians who've been killed by police here in the UK have been black. This is the reason why you find a lot of young Asian people appropriate aspects of black culture because it's seen mm. as the rebellious culture against authority, things like hip hop and so on and so forth. So if anything, I will say black people are there to fight for themselves, but nobody helps us but we help everybody so that aspect of racism is something you do not find among black people if you look across africa for example in south africa you had the apartheid system which placed white people at the top of the social pecking order yeah. then indians or south asians then after that there were colored who were created middle class of like chinese malaysian african mixed race people and then at the bottom you had black people and for those who are watching or will watch and don't know what apartheid was it meant it, it affected what kind of land you could have access to what kind of streets you could walk down mm. whether or not you'd be killed if you spoke your language publicly because if zulus spoke their language outside of certain zones they'd be killed um zulus had alcohol given to pregnant women to ensure that the children weren't born fully healthy Things like that. That's what apartheid was. You couldn't speak your language at school. The Sparksville riot happened because some kids decided to speak their language at school and they were shot by white South African police officers. Um, the kind of jobs, the kind of food, the kind of land, the kind of areas that you lived in, mm. even the policing in the areas that you lived in, were dictated by your ethnicity in countries like South Africa. And you find that when black people got up 
and formed MK, which later became the ANC, and carried out what people would call terrorist acts against the white supremacist uh, government at the time, Asians took a back seat and did nothing. Only a handful of Asians were actually participants in the um, freedom fighting for South Africa. But today you find that Asians are amongst the richest people in South Africa. You know, so I would argue that South Africans fought for Asians to have the kind of privilege they do in South Africa, as well as Uganda, as well as Kenya and all these places. So, you know. How, uh, it's interesting. And obviously you mentioned Uganda there because we had a, a brief conversation beforehand where I spoke about my own uh, Ugandan background um, and, and you shot me down quite quite quickly. Um, but I, I think it's... I, that's not what happened. That, uh, that is what happened pretty much. You you denied you denied. I did not. I sat on the fence. I didn't deny any. I just asked the question. You denied the privilege that South Asians living in Uganda had off the back of colonialism. I honestly speaking, I don't know I, the, the the history that I understand. Like looking at Uganda specifically, was was that the, the Asians came over as laborers, which you which you rightly affirmed, but you indentured labor. But they were indentured yes. labor. So I, I didn't know they had a certain a certain privilege or or. Yeah, yeah. there was a pecking order. Because, um, I mean, I know I've said this to you, but again, for the benefit of those that might be joining mm. us, um, you know, colonialism, divide and conquer was the name of the game, right? Still is. And it still is. And the way they do it is it's the same model that, that is used in schools, where, for example, in a school, you will have uh, prefects. People don't realize the real reason we have prefects in schools mm. is so that there's a pecking order when it comes to rebellion. It, it was all modeled after colonialism. So what colonialists, yeah, what colonialists did, whenever they went to a country, they would create official, um, an, an artificial middle class was that was like a buffer between them and the indigenous people. So for example, in a lot of the Portuguese uh, colonies, they were called mulattoes. If you go to Brazil, in the favelas, Brazil is so racist that there are different types of mixed race from Morena upwards, right? So it was the Portuguese that introduced this first. And what they would do, the same way you've got the caste system in India, mm. they would put everybody at different social stratification so that when a rebellion came, those house slaves would fight against the field slaves and so on. And they had enough time to regroup and run away. And in a lot of situations across Africa, Asians who were introduced to Africa as indentured labor were still not as privileged as white people, but they were given job roles land, food, and opportunities that Africans living on those lands were not given. And this was for a number of reasons. One, because they were an artificially created middle class introduced. They were, I mean, if you were brought somewhere to another land, you're going to be treated better than the people there. Two, eugenics, uh, the, the white racist or white supremacist mentality is that Asians were less likely to rebel. It's seen as docile. And that affects racism we, we encounter today. For example, we're both large men, right? However, if you were walking down the street, I thought you're a little bit bigger than me, you're taller than me anyway. Now, if, well, how tall are you, 6'2"? Six 6'2", two? Six two, yeah. Mashallah. I, I think I'd have you in a fight. Yeah, I, th <laughs> yeah, I, I think you would, bro. I think you would. <laughs> Definitely wouldn't. I've slowed down. Definitely wouldn't. Um, you would now. I hurt my hand last night. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, if me and you walk down the street, yeah. realistically, we both know that white, skinheads would attack you first not me not because of anything about you personally mm. but the perception is asian is going to be less adept at violence 
than a black person. But I guess what you're probably also saying then is that if they were to, to attack me first, you would come and help me. But if they attacked you, I'd be running away. I don't know about that. I don't know you that well. Not me personally, um, but I mean if we're stereotyping here. Well, well, what, what I'm trying to say is the perception is that you guys are less violent than us because in colonial times we were more prone to rebelling. Mm. And as such, you guys, and by you guys, I don't mean you personally, but I mean yeah, yeah, introduced yeah, I us, were given higher positions when they were, you know, in plantations or wherever it was in Africa. And that affects the mentality that we have today because you'll find, and I'm sure you've seen this yourself, among Asians, there is a mentality of just put your head down and ignore what's happening. Mm. Don't stir trouble. Whereas you'll find who started the riots in Brixton against uh, police brutality? In Birmingham, in Liverpool, in Manchester, it was black people. If we go uh, 1804, the first slave revolt, there were Indians in Haiti too, but it was African Haitians that started it. If you go to Jamaica, there were Indians there too. But it was Africans, two slaves, Kujo and Nani, who were Ghanaian originally, that started it. So, you know, again, anywhere you go, it tends to be the Africans that kick off first. And they knew this, for whatever reason, it might be cultural, who knows. Because of this, they would always create that system where we'd have to go through whoever was there. But the funny thing is, most of the time, those artificial middle classes were still left alone. So, for example, in Haiti, a lot of people don't know that there's a Polish um there's a polish minority in haiti people who were from poland and when slaves rebelled in haiti they left the polish alone and only went for the french because the french were the ones that colonized them there so the same thing when we look at africa indians by and large were not killed indians were not uh, apart from in uganda mm. which had a which was a unique situation indians were left mostly untouched we only went for the colonizers. And in this uproar, I mean, in death, there are casualties. Africans lost a lot in these fights to gain independence. Whereas the Asians, who for the most part sat through everything, benefited not just from the freedom, but from the privilege that was afforded to them before independence. So as these countries' economies grew, Asians basically took up the spaces that were occupied by white people in these countries. So, you know, when we say everybody helps their own, yeah. I disagree. I think, if anything, whenever black people try to do the same, we get targeted and called racist. So there, was, um, there were proposed events for Eid that were specific to black Muslims mm. called Black Eid. Yeah. The people who complained the first were Pakistanis. Even though when we complain about, like, I mean, again, you're in the circle, so you know, whenever we go to these Muslim events for Eid and whatnot, the food is all Asian. That's because the, the, ca the caterers are the cheapest. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> some, of, no, some of those caterers are a rip-off, mate. All right, um, I, yeah, you're right. I, to be honest, I have an issue with it. I, I look forward to going to events and thinking, oh, I'm going to have some interesting food, and it's just the same Bokori, lamb biryani, samosa, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, as a black Muslim, I turn up at these events. The speakers are people who've probably never met a black person in their life. And the talks that they give are only relevant to Asians. Mm. Sometimes you're lucky if they even speak in English. And recently, okay, they speak English, but then everything they say, they get some Pakistani guy from up north to come down to London and give a talk. And every, oh, brothers, you know, when your wife makes biryani, and it's just Asian-centric. You turn up, you're salaming people, you're being looked at like you're an animal. 
you know, it's just you don't feel welcome in these spaces. You don't. I've had an I've been I've been asked to come to an event and in my invite it said, Oh, either suits or Indian clothing. Wow. Either suits or and this this was a not some Pindu event, this is like a corporate event. So like this is all um lawyers, bankers, doctors. Now tell me what black person is gonna read that and feel welcome. So we decided to do our own events and people call us racist for it. But I'm like, you guys think it's racist when we do it, but when you guys do it, it's not considered racist. When we say, okay, let's build a mosque primarily for Africans, like now you've got them in Lewisham, Peckham, Brixton. When the ideas were first proposed for this, yeah, you get people calling, oh, are you sure it's not a nation of Islam? Okay, well, we don't call your masjids Hindu temples, but because of the majority of people praying, I remember once I was in an Uber and someone passed one of my local masjids um, ICT, right, which is founded by Revers, essentially. And he said, oh, how come most of the Muslims there are black? The guy didn't even think there's something wrong with asking me this question. I was like, well, the majority of the people in this area are African. He said, oh, but still, well, wow, most, it still doesn't click that black people can be Muslims too. Mm. You know, and this is something that if you, and you know, a lot of people don't understand how offensive this is because what you're doing is you're practically making takfir on someone based on the color of their skin. I know of a brother who's prayed Salah in a masjid on a Friday, and then someone turned oh, brother, are you Muslim? Inside the masjid. And the irony is more often than not, we probably can recite Quran better than the person that's saying this to us. You know? It's frustrating. It really is. So, you know, the, the whole thing of um, helping your own. Black people aren't even allowed to help their own. When we do, we get called racist. We get there's nothing wrong with having an Asian majority masjid, but when you propose doing something that caters to you, yeah. yeah, you have uh, Asian, you have people doing Islamic history, and all they want to talk about is the Ottoman Empire and Aurangzeb, and uh, you know the Mughal Empire and all of that. But then when we decide we want to do programs that focus on African history in Islam, which is older than South Asian history in Islam. Yeah all of a sudden we're black supremacists, you know, or even better still, a question you get asked a lot. If let's say an Asian Muslim speaker says something racist about black people, mm. when we speak out against it, we're told we're taking off our color before our religion. Why can't we have both? Because if someone says something racist about Pakistanis, nobody would say, oh brother, why are you, are you, are you Pakistani first or most? I've never heard that question. It's okay for guys to stand on the street and scream Pakistan's in the bad or need. Mm. wave flags but the moment a black person just decides that he's he doesn't feel comfortable with people um making disgusting comments about black people oh but brother the person that said it is a muslim and that's why i love uh that story of abu dar nice and because abu dar you know they came back from uh jihad they had spoils of war that they were divided and Bilal, you know, disagreed with Abu Dhar about what to do with this war booty. And Abu Dhar said, what, even you, you son, and, you son of an Ethiopian woman. He didn't call him a Kala, Shidi, monkey, Banda. He didn't call him any of that. Abid, he didn't call him that. He just spoke negatively about his heritage. And even that was enough. That when um, Abu Dhar went and spoke to, uh, sorry, when Bilal went and spoke to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa he called Abu Dhar and he was furious. He was so angry. And he berated Abu Dhar to the point that when Abu Dhar went back to Bilal, he was crying and he put his head on the floor 
and said, step on my head. Now, we really need to look at that because, as you know, in Arab culture, someone pointing their feet at you mm. is a huge insult. Yeah. And much like many cultures, the head is a sacred, you know, in, in Arab culture, the head is something that you don't, like, you don't touch your elder's head. Mm. You don't pat your older. He wanted Bilal to put the dirtiest part of his body on his head. And he was basically bowing to him, which, you know, Islamically is not even right. That's how ashamed he felt for what he did. Now, let's frame that and think about modern times. If that was modern times, and Bilal went and told somebody, Abu Dhar said this to me, like, oh, but he's not racist. You guys just fought jihad together. Oh, but he's not racist. He's one of the Sahaba. How could he be? Brother, brother, there's no race in Islam. Brother, there's no race in Islam, brother. Subhanallah. Why don't you make excuses for Abu Dhar, brother? Make excuses for Abu Dhar. Come on. <laughs> Why are you you're the racist? Why do you see yourself as black? Oh, but technically, what he said is it wrong? Your mom is Ethiopian, <laughs> the, right? The, the, but these are the arguments we see today. Where is the humility from these Muslim speakers who say racist things? Where is it? Yeah. Where did, where is their head for us to step on? Do, do you I'm have do you have room for people to make mistakes based off of their privilege? And, and I'm asking this with the context of obviously, you know, we discussed previously, there was like an event that recently took place or was due to take place. And yeah. um, the, the, there was a panel discussion about Islamophobia, um, I believe it was. And, and all of the speakers were basically from one ethnicity. Um, and there was not much representation on there. Also, there was, an, there was also an issue of, of gender equality as well. There are no women on the panel. Um, and so what was interesting... Got women, but then all the women also happened to be from this ethnicity. But yeah, so I mean, the thing is, the, the, the point that I made to you, and, and I think sometimes it's, it's easy to get lost in our own privilege. Like when we had the conversation earlier offline about Uganda... Um, I fully don't know the history and, and didn't appreciate and realize the, the the levels there. Now, obviously, I'm I'm hoping that doesn't manifest itself in a, in in a racist way in terms of my actions. But but but, but where do you draw the line? I think the, what happens it's based on how you respond to. It. I mean, in some issues, right? In some issues, I can understand. Like for example, and can I can I ask one more question quickly on top of this? So also with that, so let's say you've seen something wrong take place, something happened. When do you call up the person, and when do you call out the person? Because I always believe, and I've seen this in the past, where there's been stuff about with the the New Zealand attack. Um, a, a brother, yeah, they organised a trip out to New Zealand. Um, to visit the the families you must remember that so i personally messaged the brother and just said listen bro with all due respect i think this is awfully um thought through like remove it um and 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 he responded so thank you blah, 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 whatever but like instantly people would screenshot it and post it online and just call it out and you know call out culture is big yeah. now it's, it's well, almost like trendy i don't even like the term call out culture because i feel it undermines the needed right people have to be angry about things and i think also it's steeped in alt-right language yeah, but hang on. It's steeped... I, I, being angry at something and calling it out are two different things that the prophet Muhammad said if you see something that is wrong change it with your hands if you can't change it with your hands speak out against it and if you can't do that then feel anger in your heart but that is the least amount of faith yeah. If in this day and age, the age of information, yeah. where you can get answer to every single question, where the whole world is at your fingertips, 
you still cannot see why certain things are wrong, you deserve to have people get angry and shout at you. You do. Like if I'm walking down the street and someone is walking down the street on their phone and they barge my four-year-old daughter and knock her to the ground, even if it's a mistake, my emotion will be anger. And what you're not getting is this. Like when, well, I mean, what, what you're not getting, but what these people aren't getting is this. When we talk about anti-blackness, you have to think about, and, and, any, and even misogyny as well, you know, and sexism. It's not just, oh, it's just a little thing. It's that my ancestors died for this in Aya. People die for this. People are thrown on the floor. Like when um, Abu Ibrahim made those racist comments about how don't, he basically criminalized the way black people talk. The ones in Birmingham. And blamed anything. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, people I know are getting stopped and searched, their arms broken by being thrown on the floor just for how they look. These are boys who've never committed a crime. Yeah. But the way they look, the way they talk is criminalized. And, you know, that sort of thinking is completely haram because with the exception of Suleiman and Musa, the majority of our prophets were working class men, right? Which means the way they spoke in the context of today would have been closer to the colloquialisms we see on the street. These were middle class men, apart from Suleiman and Musa, who still rebelled. Now, when we look at how Musa والسلام, responded to things, he was a passionate man and he got angry. When he saw his people being, being hurt, Bani Israel, who were black, he saw his people being maltreated and it angered him. People have the right to be enraged. If I see an event, these guys who threw this event are all middle class, educated, traveled men, well-traveled men. If with that opportunity, they still choose not to understand why these things are wrong, then that is a flaw in their character. And maybe the rage that they see will help. Because if you tell someone politely, like someone knocks over my daughter and I say, oh, he just knocked over what are you like, eh? <laughs> they won't understand how bad what they just did is. Yeah. They won't. Sometimes some people need to get, you know, some people need to feel aggression and anger. Um, it's the same thing like when a sister has been harassed sexually while working at, a, a, and this is a sister I know personally, was sexually harassed working at a Muslim organization. And when she spoke about it, brothers mocked her. She has the right to be angry. These things are not right. When the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was told about Abu Dhar, did he respond? Did he respond calmly? Now I want you to take this into context. Somebody went to the Prophet Muhammad and told him that he was too busy engaged in sexual activity with his wife. He didn't realize that the sun had come up, and this was during Ramadan, so he couldn't fast. Mm. And then when he was told to feed people, he said, "Oh." Who am I going to feed? They said, feed someone poorer than you. He said, I'm the poorest person here. Muhammad وسلم, laughed until his head fell backwards. This guy just missed Ramadan. This guy just missed a day. Look how judgmental we are when we see somebody not fasting. Right? Hmm. Now, Abu Dhar came to him, was, was reported to him for making one slightly racist comment. And Muhammad وسلم, was enraged. Somebody missing a fast didn't annoy him as much as this kind of racism yet we treat it like it's a small thing we act as if like let, let me ask you something this is a very grim thing to think of but if you were about to die you knew let's say you knew tomorrow you're gonna die mm. but you had to do one last podcast it would have it would probably be something dear to your heart right yeah. muhammad knew he was going to die and the last sermon he gave what did he speak of racism so we treat this like it's a small thing, brother, but it's not. And the only reason people can treat it like it's small is because it doesn't affect them. 
So to tell people to be calm about something because you don't experience it to the same degree, yeah. to me, it's like I'm never going to tell a woman to be calm if, if a man sends her an inappropriate message and doesn't apologize for it. And even if he does apologize, she still has the right to be enraged because there's a history of that. Fair it's enough. not just one so, small thing. So, so let me ask you then, um, why the British Asian Muslim community specifically um, that you're you're constantly at, at arms with over this? And this is I'm not at arms with the British Muslim community. I'm at Asian, arms with racists. The Asian community. The Asian community. Now, if if you're if you're saying to me that the majority of Asians are racist. Then it's not me you should be talking no, to. No, no, no. What I mean, you know what I mean by this, and and you know it's not me. No, personally I don't know either. what you mean, brother. Don't, Could you explain? You're getting very semantic with me. You want me to slip up? I'm not being you semantic. want me to slip up? Here's, here's my here's my counter. Who shares the majority of my statements? Who supports them? You tell me. I don't know. Well, you, you can. This is something you can pull. You, you can go on Twitter right now yeah. and look at my retweets. Okay. You can go on Facebook, look at the likes. Predominantly, it's South Asians. Then Arabs and black people. But it isn't like the thing is, I've always seen, and this may be from my own limited experience, maybe it's the racism that I feel. Um, I, I've seen the Arab community, for example, as being quite racist. Um, but it's something that's because they're the only people that treat you worse than us, probably. But at the same time, and that's in Dubai, in Dubai, uh, the Gulf mainly, and that's because. They've been dealing with us for thousands of years, so they they know we exist. They know we're Muslims, yeah. but to them, you guys are new. They still see South Asians as Hindus, mm. but we're still treated badly there, just not as badly. And also, a lot of Arabs do look like me. Yeah, a lot of the Asli Arabs do look, you know, as you've seen, mm. you, you know. But here's the thing: I'm gonna be honest with you. Whenever I hear South Asian complain about how they were treated in the Gulf or you know any Arab country, I'm like, good. Now you know how it feels. Because a lot of the time, people don't understand what it feels like till they get it. Yeah. Sometimes you need that education. I know of a brother who's doing research now. Um, he's doing research regarding the ancient Hebrew tribes of uh, Arabia. Because, mm. you know, as you know, there were Hebrews living in those lands before. Uh, and in Yemen and so on. And a lot of them migrated to Africa and also, you know, uh, Asia. And when he was doing research, he was some some Bengali brother. Uh, one of whom I actually exposed as a racist not long after. Um, but this guy was being treated badly um, when he went to a certain place. The Arabs said, please don't bring this guy here. And when they were on the plane, the guy turned to my friend and said, oh, I can't wait to get back to England so things can be as they were. So basically, where I'm treated better than you. Yeah. You would think that experiencing this would be like, oh, subhanAllah, brother, I had no idea how bad racism was until I saw how you're treated. Yeah. But no. And you know what? This is another key part of the the type of racism you see from Desis because who is the most famous South Asian political activist of all time? Don't... Like, who is your Martin Luther King among Indians and Pak? Who is he? What, Muslim? No, it doesn't have to be a Muslim. Ga Gandhi is probably one of the biggest. Okay, and guess what? He supported apartheid. Yeah. And he has been recorded saying that he doesn't mind apartheid as long as black people, well, that's not the word he used for us, but I'm not going to use that word, as long as we get class underneath Indians, he's fine with it. And this is the mentality that I've seen across the board. A lot of South, South Asians living in South Africa mm -hmm. want apartheid back. 
you know so it's something i see where a lot of people don't mind structural racism as long as, as, long they're, as they're not they're being treated in, as, as long as they're benefiting i mean that is problematic and I, I think this is something that i've i've seen time and time again even when it comes to i'm like, glad you admit it <laughs> i just mean as in generally um we have this notion of as long as something is good for me like even when it comes to who you vote for politically a lot of the wealthier people in our communities and muslim communities will favor a tory government that favors their businesses yeah and that's it it's like yeah. i'm benefiting it doesn't matter if, if if benefits are all over the place if the nhs is crumbling because i can afford private health care yeah um, exactly that it's, it's, people forget that their parents didn't come here rich it's a scam but you know what the funny thing is people f sometimes forget that they didn't come here rich forget their parents yeah. like even like so, so for example my, my dad's generation as you know my dad you know came from uganda as a refugee started from the bottom literally um and and worked his way up and whatever and right now it would be favorable for him personally from a financial perspective to vote tory but he's like a lifelong diehard labor supporter because he has that notion of of everyone for the, the many underdog. literally he's, he's bought he's drank mm. the kool-aid from from the labor party he's, everything's about for the many um but then there are so many people that have the same background same experience but just don't get it now let me ask you a question i've been doing that the whole time but i'll ask you another one um with regards to you still haven't answered mine but well, which we'll question go on, no, go on go on go on who are the majority of the people who retweet me yeah who share positively and support me who are they i think you told me it was asians south asians yeah mainly women yeah and there's a reason for that too because they like because how you look no no <laughs> no no let's not even go there tiger come on you're, you're the pretty boy here not me don't try um, come on no they 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 i'm the one getting beaten up always... on the street by the skinheads yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but not the face they don't want to touch the... oh, <laughs> no, no, leave his face mate he's good he's good leave yeah. it <laughs> no women tend to be more supportive of these things because they themselves are subjected to systemic oppression within communities by way of misogyny mm. and you'll find that misogyny and uh racism yeah. and other forms of depravity go hand in hand so if you show me any community and this is this is this might offend a few people but you know um I'll, you, I don't you, you mind. love it let's be honest no it, it's a painful duty yeah, yeah but you do it with a smile on your honest. face though anywhere you see anywhere you see where it's normal and accepted to discriminate against people on the basis of their ethnicity women will get treated badly and children will get treated badly i can explain that further if you want but i think you get my drift you will find that there will be a pandemic of issues of abuse mm. in any community where there hasn't been some kind of civil rights type struggle uh, for the benefit of ethnic minorities and another thing i want people to know watching this as well before you um when i say anti-blackness i'm not just talking about black people that's something again people don't understand anti-blackness isn't about black people anti-blackness affects everybody anti-blackness affects the sister or the brother that gets their rishte turned down because they're too dark-skinned yeah anti-blackness is is the thing where you know somebody has a round nose in a pakistani family and they call him kala denak or kaliya denak right anti-blackness is is when people tell you you should bleach your skin because as an asian man or woman you're too dark-skinned so you'll never get married you're not good looking enough it's the the racism you receive because of your proximity to blackness so for example the pakistani purge of bengalis mm. was anti-blackness right and the racism 
that you might receive maybe from Iranians as a Pakistani mm -hmm. is still anti-blackness because you're the darker skinned person. You're the black person in that situation. In Russia, you see um, Chechens and uh, Dagestanis. Yeah. The racist word they use for those people who are Caucasian, literally the original white people in Russian. And I know this because my father speaks Russian, which is a cool story I'll tell you about later. <laughs> But the, the racism that um, Muslim ethnic minority Russians get in Russia, one of the things they get called is black. Negre, black. They call them black. Where, where do you think Even this all stems from? Because I, I've, to be honest, I, I, for a while I've kind of attributed um, this anti-blackness. And as you said, that's not just for people that are ethnically black, but people that are darker skinned than whatever else. I've always seen that as like almost like a byproduct of internalized colonialism of like, as you said, this is something that has come from um, white societies where they've wanted to create it. They wanted to create social structures and hierarchies that place them on top and everybody else on a sliding scale below. Um, but, but you mentioned, you know, other parts of the world and whatever else. What, what do you think is, is the root of, of all of this from like your own understanding? In, in a way, I agree with you, you're correct. It is from colonialism, but it's not from the, the hash of colonialism that most people think of. Because when you say colonialism in India or the Indian subcontinent, people think that you mean the English, the Portuguese who uh, went into India. Obviously, the English went more towards northern India and the Portuguese more towards the south and so on. Mm. Uh, no, what th this actually predates it. A lot of people say the caste system, and they're almost correct too. But actually, if you look into Hinduism, for example, their main god is Krishna, which means the dark one. And originally, he was drawn as black. Right Now, after the invasion of Central Asians, I believe it was, so like Mongols, Uzbeks, Central Asians, people that are almost ethnically Russian as well, they came into Asia. They invaded and they permeated the genetics and the ethnicity and the culture of most of North India. So that's why, for example, Punjabis and most Pakistanis are Indo-Aryan. You're not Dravidian. Or maybe you have a very small percentage of Dravidian in your, in your um, DNA. Mm. Whereas those in the South, who are still quite dark-skinned, still have Dravidian and even East African DNA in them. But this idea of white is right and dark is wrong, that actually comes from that first settlement of Central Asians, who then came. They're the reason why Krishna is now drawn blue. He was initially drawn black. Now the only um, Hindu god that's drawn black is Kali, the goddess of destruction and death. Mm. But Krishna himself, and the whole reason, like for example, you look at Brahmins, the, the top class and the Dalits are darker skin. Yeah. Krishna was drawn looking like a Dalit because they wanted to show that there is holiness in humility. The same central theme in almost every religion. The low person, the, 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 the downtrodden person is the holiest and the closest to God. So Krishna initially was drawn as a dark-skinned man or black-blue, but black, right, like a Jarawala. If you look at the tribal people living in India now who have not mixed with any Greek or, or Central Asian or any of that, they pretty much look like Africans. And Indians keep them in human zoos. They're called Jarawa, right? Not to be mistaken with Habash, the other black people you find in India, who, who I'll discuss in a little bit. But, yeah, sorry. It's like but, a history and geography lesson all at once. <laughs> well, people think that I'm just making this stuff up. I have to, I have to be factual, right? Um, but if you look at, in, there's people called Jarawa or Jawara in India, and they're kept in open air zoos. 
right? If you go look at the North Cent Sentinel Island, they look just like those people. They're the original African settlers of the Indus Valleys who then ran away when India was being invaded and they went on to different islands. They haven't mixed. So they look like the original settlers. Mm. The reason you don't look like them is because over time, the Indian subcontinent was invaded by different types of Europeans. This was long before the English came. And that's why your hair grows different and your skin is different. Because think about it, you're a people that live or lived originally in very hot uh, climate in the sun, yet you're not melanated like Africans are. Mm. Even though some parts of the Indian subcontinent are as hot as Africa, evolutionarily, that does not make sense. That's because you've mixed. And with this mix came that feeling that that culture of racial superiority from then. And it spread. So you'll find the Iranians who are also Aryans, they, they went into the Arabian Peninsula. You'll find the Greeks took this mentality as well with them into Africa, parts of Africa, North Africa and East Africa. And over time, there's been a whitewashing of different religions, not just Islam, but of Christianity and Hinduism as well. So it's not an accident. You, you talk about mixing. Um, and I think that leads me quite nicely onto another point, which is both of us actually. <laughs> um, so my, my wife's Iraqi. Um, well, Iraqi, Iranian, <laughs> Turkish is a confusing mix. Yeah, a bit, a bit of that stuff at the so wedding. So she's an Azari? Uh, sorry? Is she an Azari? I, honestly, I don't know what she is. Are her people Iranians that speak Turkish? I think on, on her dad's side, there might be like an Iranian-Turkish yeah, thing going on. And then on her mum's side, yeah. it's more like Iraqi. like. So they're Azaris and Kurds? Not Kurds. That might be offensive. Okay, just ask <laughs> I don't know. I don't just know. We, we, we can ask her another time. And then obviously you've also yeah. um, married outside of your culture. So I believe your wife is South Asian, bit of Punjabi, Punjabi in there as well, I think. Oy, oy. Wikipedia is serving me well. I like this. Um, <laughs> so my, look, my thinking has always been, because I have a big problem with kind of uh, racism and, and the ethnocentricity of like our own mosques and centers. Right. So like when you go to a center that's like a Pakistani center that does everything in a Pakistani way or an Indian center or an Iranian center or anything. I have I have personally have a problem with that when there are membership policies, for example, um, that prevent someone from being a member of a mosque based on their ethnicity. It's it's crazy. Or a committee of the mosque. Or, or, or a committee of the mosque and all of these things. Right. So this is my strategy. I'll let you in on a secret. My strategy is that my wife can now be a member of my mosque, for example, by being married to me. And then our kid is only going to be half or like a quarter Indian, depending. And then you just keep going down the line. And all of a sudden, what does it even mean to be ethnically anything? That's cute. Um, are, you not, are, you not, are you not vibing <laughs> with this? Uh, no, while I'm, I'm not against, um, obviously, I'm not against people marrying, for different, marrying from different cultures. Yeah. Here's my problem with that form of thinking. Okay. If that form of thinking was correct, yeah. then countries with the most ethnic mixes would be the least racist. But when we look across the board, we find that that is not the case. For example, Brazil, actually Suriname is the most, you know, racially diverse country in the world, mm -hmm. right? They, they have the most holidays because they've got Chinese, Malaysian, Thai, all types of African, Indian. But they still had to have a war between ethnically black people and those that were at the top. Because the problem is institutional. So if you've got a whole bunch of mixed race people, look at Argentina. Argentina... I think about 80% of Argentines have African DNA in them, but they had a purging of anything of African origin within Argentina, where they wiped out anything cultural, any cultural references, buildings, people, 
that were overtly African, and many of them fled to Brazil, where they also had something called Black Mentiao, where that was done. You, you see things like Capoeira, for, for instance. At one point, even that was illegal because it had African roots. Even though many Brazil is one of those countries where many people will have maybe skin color just a few shades darker than mine mm. or, so, or lighter than mine, and they'll still call me Negro, Negrito. These are problems we have across. You look at Mexico, you look at Puerto Rico, you look at Dominican Republic is right next okay, door but, to Haiti. But, sorry, isn't I'm, I'm good. Marrying. No, sorry, no, no. what I'm going to ask you is because cause you're, you're going very macro. I'm thinking micro, right? Even on the micro, it will not work. Why not? How many mixed race people have you met that still see themselves superior to another race? There's mixed race people out here who are more racist than white people because they feel that one side of their mix makes them superior to other people. In fact, look at Pakistan. You've got people who are obsessed with certain patans, for example, because they've got blue eyes. Mm. You know, if you do not take away from the pedagogy, if you don't take away from the actual systems in place, you can mix for a thousand years. A thousand. There's a reason why a lot of Pakistanis with the last name Qureshi feel that they're superior to other Pakistanis because, oh yeah, because I'm a Quraysh. There's a reason why you've got Jamaican people who look down on an African because their hair grows different. Because if you don't get rid of the ideology, mm. if you don't get rid of the things people are taught and the systems, people will continue to be racist. So my marriage is a sham. Yeah. Thank you, bro. <laughs> Appreciate it. Please tell me your wife is in here. But listen, <laughs> love who you want to love, get married, but marry somebody because you care about them. Yeah, no, Marry of somebody because... No, but, but, but as I said, my, my, the way I'm seeing is that like I've had a daughter who's now one years old. Ethnically, she's all over the place. And, and I, I just see it like we, you know, she can't, for example, hold on to like one aspect. And you're saying that obviously people do. But I, my, my thinking is that she wouldn't be able to be like, oh, I'm this or I'm that or I'm Arab or I'm... Bro, bro let, 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 me, let me hit you with this now. Okay. I've got two daughters. One's four, one's one. Right? They both have Afros. They're black. Among Pakistanis, nobody's going to point at them and say, those are up and in. It's not going to happen. Uh, among Africans, we don't care. When we went to Nigeria, me and my wife never... My wife and I got stared at less in Nigeria than we do on some streets here in the UK. Really? Right? It, literally, nobody... We have Lebanese people living in Nigeria. Growing up, I thought Lebanese was a tribe. I didn't realize that it was because <laughs> we took in... Yeah. You go... I don't know if you've been anywhere in West Africa, but if you go to Ghana, yeah. Nigeria, Ivory Coast, we have huge settlements of Lebanese who will fight you if you tell them that they're not from those countries because we took them in during the refugee crisis that they had. You mean like ethnically Arab, Lebanese... Blue eyes, some of them blonde hair, but they speak with strong Nigerian accents. Really? They've been living in Africa for so long that the Nigerian shawarma is a thing. <laughs> yeah, like it's actually part, become part of our um, cuisine. No way. Yeah, like some of, yeah, going to school, we had loads of Lebanese, loads of Indians, right? And they live among us and there's no tension. There's no, we just see them as, I didn't even know Lebanon as a country until I was a bit older, like, mm. like nine, ten. Growing up, I thought, oh, they're Lebanese. Because we've got tribes in Nigeria that look like you. Tuareg, Berber tribes, they look like you. But they live because we, we share borders with countries like Chad. You know? So we don't get stared at when we go to Nigeria. But when we're in England, we get stared at when we're out together. And I don't even want to think how life would be if we went to Pakistan together. So the point is this. 
as long as there's a racist culture, I mean, you guys have a privilege because, you know, maybe you and your wife, your your kids may, might be racially ambiguous or even look white or Arab. I don't know. Yeah. But because of the fetishization of, of light skin, if your kids grow up looking Caucasian or white, they'll get treated better than mine. Yeah. Even though they're mixed, it won't matter. My, we don't have that privilege. The melanin is too strong. <laughs> My kids will be called black. That's what they'll be called. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the thing is, it's, it's, it's something that's, that's really kind of jarred within me for a long time now. And like, when, again, as I said, especially when I'm looking at our communities, I don't see the, um, the kind of the free mixing of races that there should be. And, and people often talk about it. But, you know, you look at the mosque of the prophet, look at who the prophet kind of attracted towards Islam initially. It was anyone. There, anyone, everyone. Literally anyone and everyone. And then you look today... And we've gone so far away from that essence that it's sad. Uh, so, Nabil, there's, there is one thing I wanted to kind of um, take up with you a little bit. <laughs> I, oh. I, I, can, I can somewhat understand the, the, the kind of principal stance that you take against racism. Mashallah, brother. But I would argue um, that the, the approach that you take, the wording you choose, the akhlaq that you have, if I'm going to go all the way, and say, uh, you know, go all out, I, I would see as sometimes a bit problematic. <laughs> so as, as I see it, as I see it, the... Problematic, yeah. Um, we have obviously in our tradition that the Holy Prophet, um, peace be upon him, came to, you know, perfect our akhlaq. And so when dealing with everyone and anyone, the element of how we conduct ourselves is really important. Um, and that's the one thing that I see as uh, you're smiling and pointing, but I, I hope you're also listening to what I'm saying. Oh, of course, uh, brother. <laughs> so the best of class. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop speaking now. I'll, I'll let you jump in, bro. I've heard this so many times, and here's the problem: Muslims today are so castrated, colonized, homogenized, and funkified that we think that if somebody isn't smiling and saying like. Oh, brother, inshallah, subhanallah, please, if you can just pass me that milk, alhamdulillah, inshallah, I'm going to put in my tea and drink, inshallah. They're not being nice. Or they're, they're, they have poor akhlaq. And then they never ever look at the context of the discussion that's being had, right? Um, I did an Islamic event recently, and someone walked up to me and referred to me as a nigger, right? That word is the last word that many of my ancestors heard before they were lynched. This was a Muslim man who walked up to me. I thought it was acceptable. An educated man thought it was acceptable to refer to me as this. Now, I'm sorry, but in such a situation, I have the right to lose my temper. Don't worry. The man left with all his teeth. He, I, it wasn't violence. But I expressed myself in a way befitting of the situation at hand. Yeah. We, you know, Again, we look at the Abu Dhar situation when he was racist to Bilal radiallahu anha. And we see how the Prophet Muhammad responded. He was enraged. You do not have the right as an oppressor or person from the group that oppress others to impose how the person oppressed should react to oppression. If I am angry by something that has upset me, it is my right to be angry. The person, the onus isn't on me to have the best of akhlaq. If we care about akhlaq so much, these people wouldn't be racist in the first place. Yeah, uh, of course, but we can we can only control ourselves. So it's like in any situation. Okay. Even yeah, they control themselves and don't worry about how we react. 
Because if you guys control it, and by you no, guys, I mean yeah, the agents this, but, who are the I'm, 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 I'm siding with the oppressed right now. So I'm saying... Yeah, but I'm saying is this. If you, if you call me, that man calling me a nigger and me not breaking his jaw was my akhlaq. Because the rage I felt, he didn't feel. Again, you have to look at context. If a Muslim sister is walking down the street and a man comes and pinches her, her bottom or something of that nature, sexually harasses her, and she starts shouting and swearing, right? I'm sorry, but right now, the problem isn't the akhlaq. My, I have no right to question that woman's response to that. That is offensive. That is a horrible thing to do to another human being. The rage should be with the person that caused this anger. Furthermore, when we look at the Sahaba, right? And I'm going to say this, you might call, you can edit it out, but this is something that is written. One of the Sahaba told, <laughs> one of the Sahaba told the uh, pagans of Mecca to go and lick the private parts of one of their idols. I'm not going to quote exactly what he said. You might call this vulgar, but in the situation where they were, that was acceptable. You know, Islam isn't a fake religion. Islam isn't a religion of just idealism. It's a pragmatic religion. And there is room for anger and rage. The Prophet Muhammad described the one who is racist as tantamount to biting his father's private parts. Is this not vulgar? If somebody just said that, oh, go and bite your father's this, that, and the other. If I said that to somebody on the Islam channel or on BMTV or any Muslim media outlet, they would ban me from going on there because I'm using vulgar language. Yet, the Prophet Muhammad was the one, was the source of this quote. He described people who are racist as dung beetles rolling up balls of excrement. If I said that on a Muslim newspaper, radio, or TV show, that would be called rude. But that was the um, comparison given to us by the Prophet Muhammad So when people talk about akhlaq, I think what it really is, is an internalized, one, privilege, or two, colonization. Because a lot of the time you find from, basic, from the basic community, somebody who normally would fly into a rage about something, when it's a white person that offends them, they don't have that same energy or that same rage. When a white, look, let me give you an example. When a white person says something racist about Muslims or, or, or ignorant about Muslims, and you go online, you look at the comments underneath the article shared, for example, Katie Price, you will find people defending and saying, oh, still, it's not right, brothers. You should have manners. Don't speak about her that way. You even find brothers willing to have someone like Katie, <laughs> Katie Shaitan over for tea. You'll find Muslims sitting down having tea with this woman, yeah. right? But when there's a video of, say, a black person and an Asian arguing and the black non-Muslim says something bad about Muslims or about Asians, go into the comment sections online and you'll see all kinds of bandar, nigger, kala, all kinds from openly practicing Muslims or apparently practicing Muslims. Why? Why, 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 why? And you find that people want to police black reaction to this sort of abhorrent racism. Because when I came and said, look how disgusting these comments are. They're like, oh, brother. Really, you should care about the Asianists receiving it. I'm like, but you guys are doing the same thing. And you guys are Muslims. Yeah, but brother, they're angry. It's always made into a small thing. It's always made into, oh, but, you know, because internally, like, yeah, but, you know, we, what's wrong with being racist towards black people? It's seen as something small. And I just before, I, I want to give you a, another clear example. So Hamza Yusuf, a few years back, and you see, there's a hashtag, Nabil knows. I use that a lot. And I predict things. You start like the hashtag. Yeah. 
And I'm like Conor McGregor. I see things. Yeah, you can call me Mystic Nabs. When Hamza Yusuf came out, he said that the problem in America isn't the hundreds of years of oppression against Black Americans. It is a systemic oppression, the flooding of the areas with drugs, police murdering them, them being denied education, denied employment. Said no, no, the problem is fathers they don't have fathers and black on black crime he, but nobody wants to explain why there are no fathers in these in, in these neighborhoods or why black on black crime is on the rise he didn't want to discuss it. he said that yeah basically it's black people's fault you know there is no problem with police brutality it's their fault right and i said if he came out and said the same thing about palestinians and said that the suffering palestinians have at the hands of israeli soldiers is down to them or syrians that what's happening to them is it's their own fault. I said the same Muslims who are defending him would be enraged. And people said, Nabil, you can't compare it. So I said, you can, because you're victim blaming a group of people who are being oppressed yeah. for their own oppression. Nobody listened to me. Now, this year, what happened? He spoke about the what Syrians. Happened? Let me tell you, no. what did I tell you? And it happened. It happened. And the same people who were defending him Many of them turn out, no, brother, you can't say that. You can't say that. Oh, just saying sorry isn't enough, brother. There you go. Why didn't they feel the same rage when he was saying the exact same thing about black Americans? Whose struggle is comparable to the struggle of Palestinians? If not worse, because it's been happening for 400 years and they're being killed at the same rate. Why wasn't, why wasn't a comparison made? Why, 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 why wasn't a comparative uh, a reaction made? because black people are seen as less than human so the only way we can get people to notice our problems is for us to get angry is for us to kick up a fuss because when we say things politely nobody listens fair enough <laughs> i don't know how to follow that um you see bro the problem is this muslims are so pacified now by colonial forces that we only feel safe celebrating passiveness we only feel safe celebrating harmlessness so for example we look at the new zealand shootings and everybody's deifying the guy that said he loves the man that killed his wife now i'm not going to judge the brother because you know shock is a hell of a thing nobody knows how they react but more more props are given to the man who said he loves the woman that shot uh the, the man that shot his wife more props are given to the guy that says come in brother than to the man who died to try and disarm the gunman and got killed. Now, to me, that is 100% a shaheed. He went into the line of fire to try and save people. How many Asians know his name? He was a Pakistani as well. But people were too busy celebrating the man who lived and said he loves his wife's killer. Or the guy that said, come in, brother. Now, uh, recently in uh, Norway, a 75-year-old Pakistani ex-Air Force officer disarmed a 20-something-year-old boy who was on steroids and trained. Mm. These boys, these um, white supremacists across Scandinavia, they, they go training things like Krav Maga, they learn martial arts, tactical shooting, they go to the gym, take steroids. This boy was in his 20s. This 70-something-year-old man disarmed him and beat him up and held him down till the authorities came. He didn't get half the media coverage that these other people got. You reckon? Nope, I'm, I'm sure of it. So I, sure. I, I, I'll tell you from my perspective, when I saw with the New Zealand coverage, um, specifically with, with the man at the door who kind of said, welcome brother, um, and, and then was, was, a, was killed, um, as you said, like there was an element of him being kind of 
immortalized and deified in, in, in what he said and the generosity that he showed. Um, and it's very interesting that you said we kind of look up to an idolized pacificity almost to an extent, right? Mm-hmm. And what kind of was a bit jarring for me in contrast to that was the response to the, the Norway attack. Because we, we covered that story and I was I was like standing there going, this guy's a legend. Like this guy's 70 whatever. He's disarmed a kid and saved countless lives. But you're right. You're a kid. A man. A, a man. A young man. But, but what's interesting is that the his story kind of disappeared very quickly i i don't know if it didn't receive as much coverage it's it difficult to kind of quantify at least in the muslim space it, it, it's, it's quantifiable because all you need to do is check the hashtags of their names so you know and you see that this here's the thing i like triangulation when we look at this the hadiths that you find people love to share online mm. people always love to share false hadiths of how the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam had some jewish woman pour entrails on him while he was praying and he did nothing, and then, you know, he he went to visit her when she was sick. People love to share that hadith. They don't look at the context of why Muslims did not respond to aggression at this time, but they never share the hadith of what Muslims did when one woman had her, her garments torn. Mm. Nobody loves. Nobody likes to share the story of Mutasim. Nobody likes to share that story. Nobody shares stories about Ali and the giant. What he did when the giant stepped out and challenged all Muslims, and only Ali was brave enough. To, to stand in front of him and fight. Nobody wants to share that. People want to talk about love thy neighbor, but they never see the things like Surah Al-Anfal that first says, if you stand and there are 10 people attacking you and you're on your own, stand and fight. Then later it says two. And people say in the tafsir that it's because Muslims have gotten weaker. But at the very least, as a Muslim man, if two people attack you, you should stand and fight. Nobody shares the hadith where it says, the Prophet Muhammad said that if somebody comes to steal from you or rob you, you fight that person. Nobody shares these things. Not go and attack innocent people, but stand up for yourself and defend yourself and defend others. Be strong. I, be brave. I think the you context know, the context is actually really important, as you said. D- in the times that we live in. Yeah, the, the thing is, I, I feel almost like at the times that we live in, we're, we're getting closer and closer to this point of... And it's been... We've got an article on this, I think, by someone, one of the brothers from MPAC wrote, um, that we're you know we're potentially going to see another like Muslim genocide um, in the coming years. Now, some would see that as quite an extreme end, but not at all. When we look at the kind of dehumanization of Muslims and all the different factors that are in play and have been in play in, in previous genocides, we're almost getting to that point. So, as you say, when attacks are taking place, it's almost crucial and vital that we do stand up for ourselves and not. Th- I got criticized. Yeah. For, for complaining about how most masajid do not have adequate security, right? Mm. Most mosques I've been to, the fire exits, there's not enough exits, so people are cramped. And I've said, the people that don't like us study us, they study us and they know. Look at, case in point, the man who ran over those people in Finsbury Park, he knew what time to get that man. Mm. They study us. They, they know our weaknesses and we don't do anything about Hang it. On, wasn't, wasn't the Fisbury Park dude, wasn't he on his way to the Al-Quds march, but then he overslept? Yeah, but he still, he, again, he still knew what time to go. He knew when and where to be. You know, um, the, the, the man who gunned down all those people in New Zealand, he knew where to be and what time. Yeah. You know, it's, we don't have security. You, you're lucky if it's just some old, old uncle wearing a high-vis jacket with a bucket. On a Friday, how, how many of our messages even have CCTV these days? You know, mm. things like self-defense are not prioritized for our youth. 
you go to the madrasa, all they have is flipping, you know, they just have like maybe some Quran studies and nothing else. When when I was growing up, when, when I was younger, you find masjids had like boxing programs, kickboxing programs, self-defense. They encourage strength and act, act, activity. In fact, as a sunnah, you're the only sport a young boy should be taking part in, things like archery and wrestling, if we really want to be technical. I, I ran I ran a, a self-defense program in a masjid for a little bit. And, you know, I'm not even going to tell you how that ended. You know, Muslims right now don't even know that it's halal to do that. Like, oh, brother, you know, these things are haram. You shouldn't do. I'm like, where's the, where's your dalil for it to, to be haram to teach young boys how to wrestle? There is no toughness. Um, I don't know your opinion, Abdurrahim Green, but he had a video, uh, a very old video, and I love it, where he talked about Imam Shamin. You know, and he said how the, the, the basically he started off talking about the strong believer is better than the weak believer. And he talked about how now you go up north and the Muslims up north are scared to even let their boys play rugby. You know, we do everything we can to make our kids soft and weak and scared. And we teach people that the only way to be a pious Muslim is to get slapped and smile and say thank you and offer people tea. And what people don't understand is there has to be a balance. Because, you know, the Hadith, people say the man, the strong man isn't the one that wrestles his uh, enemy down, but the one that wrestles his temper. But what people misunderstand about that is this. If you're incapable of doing something in anger, not doing something doesn't make you gentle. It just makes you a coward. That's all it does. Because it's just like seeing somebody who's poor and has tattered clothes. You say, oh, mashallah, that guy is so humble. No, he's not humble. He's broke. He can't afford nice clothes. Yeah. That's what it is. Mashallah, he's so frugal. You're saying, he doesn't man, have money. you're saying a man that doesn't possess anger can't be praised for not getting angry. Yeah, because at the end of the day, all our prophets got angry. So this is, okay, this is definitely, definitely a conversation for another time. But I'm, I'm guessing that the jump that I can make from there is that we have an issue with masculinity within our communities. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. But, but we'll save that for the next podcast. Uh, feminized and bacha bazaar. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else you want to add? Huh? Anything else you want to add? <laughs> At this point, you you might not want to add it to the. I, I was going to say it's not just uh, masculinity. Um, I think we should also be teaching. You know, I think there's also a neglect of the the role of st strong women. In Islam, the first martyrs for Islam were women. You know, um, Sumaya was the first to lose her life in the name of Islam. Mm. And we need to start teaching women, raising women to be more than just an object to men. You know, the average, you know, you go to the average Muslim household now and women aren't even encouraged to learn the religion. You know, they, they, there's no, there's no, the, people complain about how, for example, hijabi fashionistas are taking over as role models for women. But it's like, what are we encouraging them to do? We're not encouraging them to be strong leaders. The moment a woman steps out of the, the comfort zone of men and speaks on certain issues, she gets silenced. You know, the misogyny I've seen sisters like Sultana Parvin and her ilk get simply for having an opinion is disgusting. But we're the same people that will then turn around and tell people Islam gave people rights. Very much the same way we love to tell people that there's no racism in Islam, but there is no community that has more obvious racist problems or, and misogyny problems than the Muslim community worldwide. You know? Khawla bint al-Adwa, man. Sumeya. Nusayba. 
there were strong women in Islam and we need to celebrate that and try and raise women in, in that vein. Okay, now I'm done. <laughs> um, I want to ask you one probably final question. Um, and this is, I guess, for, for, for someone like myself who is ethnically South Asian, um, the, the, the group that you are at, um, I said at arms with earlier, you didn't like it, but the group that you talk about a lot. Like I, so, I don't talk about that group. I talk about racism. Okay, you talk about racism, but, but, but it's... It, people from your culture get triggered it's by It's very that. specifically always South Asians, let's be honest. It's South Asian racist, okay. not South Asian. So... Are you trying to say all South Asians no, are no, racist? No, I'm just... That's tough for the because we've, we've spoken on, over the course of the conversation about privilege and almost like internalized racism, which like sometimes we do it, we don't even realize, right? How, how do you think that people should approach um, the issue of race? And especially from like the South Asian community, how do we get to a place of, of normalizing different races and, and shedding and getting rid of any kind of internalized racism or anti-blackness that we might have? Stop pretending that these issues don't exist. Stop pretending that mentioning these issues create division because these issues have existed for over a thousand years. Um, your countries and cultures were born out of these issues. Bangladesh exists for a reason. That's because they were being oppressed by their Pakistani neighbors and had to secede, um, you know, and so on. If we, the, the, why, why I encounter, like you'll see on my Twitter, people come out and say things like, oh, you're causing division. My Facebook posts aren't the reason why my brothers are being sold by Libyans right now, nor are they the reason 2 million black people from Sudan no longer exist. Mm. Um, and also people say things like there's no race in Islam. That in itself might even be kufr because Allah says we have created you in different Nations tribes. and tribes that so you may know one another. Yeah. So if you're saying that that doesn't exist, so you're, you know better than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that says he created us in different nations. Yeah. You're saying there's no nations. The Quraysh, you know, and other tribes used to ride into battle carrying their flags. Uh, people used to identify themselves. Sometimes Bilal was, was noted as Al-Habashi, uh, Salman Al-Farsi. Right. There was there's nothing wrong in taking pride in your culture or where you're from. Mm. There is a problem in seeing yourself as superior to others. And if the human, if all if, 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 if black Muslims that don't even know each other are complaining about the same thing, if you genuinely love the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, then you need to ask yourself, why is this the issue? You need to read that last sermon and you need to also understand we are told that if you imitate a person's sunnah, you are you are from among those people. Who was the first ever racist documented in Islam? Uh, you're going to have to help me out here. Shaitan. That's what I was going to say. I was really close. Yeah, I was really close to the yeah. answer. Now, when people come out and say things about Kali and whatnot, yeah. remember that you're not just talking about Bilal, every Asian's favorite black person. You're talking about many prophets too, including Musa a.s. You're talking about several Sahaba and several Ahlul Bayt mm. who were documented as being dark-skinned people, black people by today's definition. I know this is a long point, but it's the final one, so I have to... Yeah, 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 you, you, you got it right. Go on. People need to understand as well that when they say these things, you know, when they say these things, you need to remember that people will be coming. If you believe in Yom Al-Qiyamah, if you're a Muslim, you must believe in these things. You have to ask yourself, why is it that people know the signs of the Dajjal? People know the signs of the end of days. Right, but still, when these characters appear before us, we'll refuse to follow them. What's the one thing that will make Isa appear before Muslims, and they refuse to follow him, even though they know all the signs? 
what's the one thing guaranteed that will make the majority of Muslims from a particular point in the world see Isa and say, no, 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 we're not going to follow him. If he was black. There you go. So, you know, at the end of the day, and I, just to, to further, I'm sorry, an encore, I just want to say, people might wonder why I hammer this point on, why I argue with some people online. I'm not trying to convince the people I'm arguing with because, you know, Abu Jahl didn't get convinced, right? I'm trying to convince those who are on the fence and are reading. And, you know, some people may say that I should be nicer in the way that I communicate these points. But the fact is, if you feel more in tune with the sensibilities of the oppressor than the feelings of the oppressed, then you need to check your heart. It's not on me to be nice to people who are justifying things that will affect me and my children. My four-year-old and my one-year-old deserve to live in a world where their skin doesn't mean that they'll be treated badly by fellow Muslims or their gender. So really and truly, that anger, I don't even mind if people hate me, as long as you know that what I'm saying is true. And if your knee-jerk reaction to be angry is to be angry with me, even when you're not, you can't refute anything I'm saying, then you need to check your heart as well. Because when the Quran talks about people who are deaf, dumb, and blind, it's not just non-Muslims it's talking about. Some of us see the truth in front of us, but we refuse to accept it. Thank you. And yeah, and not being racist isn't good enough. Everybody needs to jump in and do something. Fair enough. I I I don't, I, I, I can't disagree with with a, a lot of what you've said today. Mainly. So what do you disagree with? No, no, no. Listen, this is. I don't this care. Is my, this is my ending. This is my ending with? monologue. You don't get to jump in now. Your your time is finished. <laughs> <laughs> cool. uh, no, no, I've, I've genuinely enjoyed this. I, I think, as I said to you before as well, I, I think that like this perspective and the way that you articulate it, especially online, um, and for people that don't follow you on, on Twitter or Facebook, I'd encourage them to because I think it's important that people start to understand and appreciate the struggle that does exist for a lot of Muslims, but it just goes unspoken about. And as you said, I, I feel like a lot of people are just kind of, they've come to almost accept it. And so then they're so tired and they're so not willing to kind of fight that they'll, they're going to go and they're going to start their own spaces and they're going to push for, for doing things and segregate themselves from the Muslim community. And that's not on them. That's on the Muslim community. That's the community's fault that we've, we've, we've pushed people to a corner and forced them to start up their own institutions, for example. Right. Um, there's, there's a long way to go, but I think, you know, approaching it the way that you approach it, I don't personally necessarily completely agree with um the kind of agitative nature of it but i understand why you do it the way you do you're laughing <laughs> is everything okay I'm just, i don't want to jump in <laughs> Finish your monologue, uh, okay bro. okay no i was gonna ask you i i, I thought you know for people that want to come see a stand-up we haven't talked much about your comedy but i know you've got okay. the tour coming up with human appeal is that right mm -hmm. would you care to, to plug it a little bit no, that's their job. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, uh, with with tours like that, there's a little bit of uh, filtering. Censorship. Yeah, censorship. censorship. Just, filtering. Don't want yeah, to get you in trouble. Because I'm always me. I'm always me. Just I'm me to different degrees. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, if, if you like comedy that's about stuff and, and not just some guy doing chapati jokes, then yeah, you know, feel free to turn up at any of my shows. I run a regular um, special show in Central London called Black, Racist and Proud. And yes, the name is ironic. Don't worry, we're not going to lynch you if you're not black. 
Um, and uh, yeah, feel free. Um, if anyone wants to have uh, further conversations on this topic, I'm always willing to discuss. Uh, then again, um, you know, I'm easy to find on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, yeah, pretty much that. We'll put the links in the in the description. But thank you very much for your time today. It's, it's unfortunate you couldn't come down to the studio. Well, I said the studio, the office. Um, mm. But inshallah, another time. Inshallah, inshallah. So it's quite a wide-ranging conversation. And to be honest, a little bit. I don't want to say uncomfortable, but difficult for me to fully have the conversation because I'm speaking from a position of privilege um, and, and that was the kind of realization I had very early on that I'll never fully be able to understand and relate to uh, the struggle of black Muslims and you know for example there are reports that talk about um, women who have three layers of discrimination where they're they're women for starters and they're Muslim and they're also black as well um, and and it's just like this this compounded racism that people or the compounded discrimination that people face um, and it's something you know being on the on, on the tail end of Islamophobia and general kind of racism but I feel like especially within the Muslim community um, anti-blackness is something that that is definitely a problem that needs to be addressed um, and I yeah I, I feel like we we do need more people who are more vocal about it um, and more people addressing and actually doing something to to sort it out really um, and, and I feel like one of the big issues that we have is that in positions of authority and power within um, at least w within the UK within the kind of hierarchy of organisations there aren't enough uh, or there isn't enough general diversity um, and that's something we definitely need to address and look at. Um, but yeah, I mean, Nabil wasn't really obviously telling any jokes. It was quite a serious conversation, but I have seen him perform live. Um, and I, I genuinely have really enjoyed his, his stand-up comedy as well. Um, so if you do get the opportunity, do check him out. Um, try and track him down wherever he is. He's, I mean, the Human Appeal Tour, I think they're all around the country. So that there should be an opportunity where he'll be close to you if you're based in the UK and you're listening to this. Um, but yeah, if not, then then check him out on Twitter and Facebook. We'll put the links in the uh, the show notes. Um, but that's about it for another podcast. Um, I, I'm going to keep asking, and, and the numbers are going up. But you know, please do give us a rating, uh, ideally five stars, obviously, with some nice comment or so about how much you love the podcast. It would really mean a lot to us. That's that's about it. Um, we'll be back next week with another great guest or two and who knows Hassan might even join us once again once he's done being too busy for the Muslim Buyer podcast until next week see you later I guess sorry this was a really bad ending next week will be better I promise I hope anyway alright bye